0: Good evening and welcome to this Philosophy at LSE event. Um, It is an event jointly organized, and I'm sorry I have to read this from a sheet because there's a number of organizations involved, by the Forum for European Philosophy, the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Method, as well as the Center for Philosophy of Natural and Social Sciences. Um, First things first, um, I replaced Tali Sherritt Um, uh, uh, as chair tonight. She felt uh, felt unwell this morning, and so um, I was the first person she thought of as she felt unwell ill so i 'm starting to think about the associations here. may not work in my favor. Um, second things um, is in this age of Facebook and Twitter, which is not wholly unrelated to tonight 's subject, um, is the Twitter hashtag for this evening is LSC at uh, sorry lSC Open Society uh, after the hashtag. Uh, And then, uh, obviously, uh, and needless to say, that tonight's lecture by Professor Jason Alexander on the question of uh, privacy and openness is a very timely topic that's receiving a lot of attention, uh, well-deserved, and unlike Karl Popper and his well-known work on favoring the open society, Professor Alexander will develop arguments to show that sometimes the open society may actually turn on its own citizens. Uh, for those of you who don't know Professor Alexander, he's a professor of philosophy here at the LSE and has uh, publications in a, or on a wide-ranging set of interesting topics, including social and political philosophy. Um, Before I turn the floor to Professor Alexander, just a quick word on the format of tonight's proceedings. It's an hour and a half, though we've started a bit late. Um, So Jason will speak and will do his lecture until about 7.30. And after that, we'll have Q&A with the audience. Um, And so I hope that will be a fruitful uh, discussion for all involved. Good, thank you. Jason, the the floor is yours.
1: Back in 1768, Jeremy Bentham said, without publicity, no good is permanent. Under the auspices of publicity, no evil can continue. Now, a slogan isn't actually an argument, but nevertheless, some people have thought that there were some good reasons behind what Bentham was saying. And I suspect that some of the reasons that were captured in what Bentham said might lie behind the mixed reaction that has come from some of the public and other figures with regards to the Snowden revelations on the surveillance that has been engaged in by the NSA and GCHQ. I think that in this age of increased informational transparency uh, an open society in which a great deal of what has been formerly made private is now public, people are hard-pressed to see what exactly might be some of the negative consequences of the surveillance and the informational transparency and the openness which has been Uh, Revealed not only in terms of the government surveillance, but also in terms of the actual social practices that many people engage in when they work with Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and all other kinds of social media. And so what I want to do in this talk is first of all begin with some introductory comments regarding what exactly the open society is and several different ways in which we might understand the meaning of the phrase the open society. And then after talking about how the open society now is very different from the kinds of open societies that we used to live in in the past, start to think about how the changing nature of privacy and the private sphere has shifted with respect to the early origins of human society and the current shape of societies in which we now live. And then what I want to do is talk through about how the open society, as it's currently understood in terms of informational transparency and the erosion of the private sphere, ultimately, I think, serves to challenge some of the foundations of democracy, and hence the title of the talk, The Open Society as an Enemy. So, to begin, let me just ask the question, well, what exactly do we mean by the open society? Why is an open society often viewed as desirable? Well, some idea behind why the open society is desirable, we heard just a moment ago with the comments from Jeremy Bentham, but I think before we start to talk in detail about the open society, we need to actually disambiguate a number of different ways of understanding what the open society actually means. Because I think that there are at least five different senses that people might mean when they talk about an open society. So on one hand, there's a sense in which an open society is a society in which there are opportunities for vertical mobility that are available to all, regardless of their birth or socioeconomic background. I think there's also another notion of open society, which we see debated quite heavily right now with the coalition government, regarding freedom of movement and mobility across borders and across political boundaries. And yet, there's even a third sense of the open society, and as I'll say a bit more later, this is the sense of open society that I think Popper was most concerned with in his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, in which we often talk about the open society in the sense that the future is open. It remains capable of being created and shaped by us, and it is, up, it is under our own design rather than any sort of external influence and, and cause. Two other senses of open society, which I'm most interested in, is an open society where we talk about, say, open access to information, that people can freely access, whether it be through Wikipedia, through open libraries, or through other kinds of repositories, information which they need to become better informed to be able to deliberate and to be able to make decisions. And also, an open society in which there's a great deal of informational transparency about the lives of the citizens, what they engage in on a day-to-day basis, and their thought and their mode of life. And it's these latter two senses that I will primarily refer to when I talk about the open society, because I think these are the two most important Senses of open society which threaten to undermine the foundations of democracy and which challenge the current relations of power and society. Now, what are some arguments that can be given for why democratic societies are normally thought to require openness? Well, as Bentham said, there is a sense of trying to make sure that good continues and that evil is put in check. And these arguments, I think, are relatively straightforward. There's a sense in which we say democratic societies need to be open because openness creates the possibility for having better informed decisions that are made by voters. And so it's in this sense where open access to information is a a powerful and important sense. And then secondly, there's a notion in which open societies, through greater informational transparency about what leaders deliberate on, what decisions they make and why, you know, those open societies can hold accountable leaders to the will of the electorate. And so this is the second sense of open society, informational transparency. And in light of this, I think we can identify quite readily a number of instances that we might want to point to as failures of openness which have occurred quite recently. So think about the kinds of criticisms that were made about Blair's sofa style of government, in which the real decisions that were taken and made didn't occur within the normal frameworks of minute deliberations within committees by the various members who were elected and representing people on those committees. Rather, the real decisions were made off record you know, on a sofa during an informal deliberation. And then the committees and the meetings were actually set forward as a way of trying to provide publicly articulatable reasons for why something was done rather than the real reasons that something was done. And similarly, we see this in the States regarding the decision to invade Iraq, same over here, and the fact that the NSA and GCHQ engaged in a process of widespread surveillance without many of the regulatory bodies who were actually charged with being aware and monitoring the practices of NSA and GCHQ in terms of what they were actually doing. Failures of openness in all of those cases. Now, I've made a note to go to um, Popper's Open Society, and I just want to emphasize, again, this isn't the sense of openness which I'm, strictly speaking, concerned with. Now, when Popper was talking about the open society, what he was concerned about was how certain understandings of society didn't seem to fit in with the idea that the future is under our control to be shaped and determined in the way that we actually see fit, and so he actually distinguished between, say, two different stages by of society. One stage, and this is phrased in the term of regularities because at the time Popper was writing, this was the standard language that philosophers used. So at the first stage of development, no distinction was really made between regularities of the natural world and regularities of the social world. That is, if you think about the kinds of patterns and operations of society, there is no real distinction between those and those of the physical world. And in a sense, you can see how that would make sense, where if you think that the world and everything which is in it was created by God, there's really no distinction between natural and social regularities. They are all expressions of the will of God and they're regularities that were created through that. Now, the second stage is this idea that the social regularities, the regularities that are present in social practices, are actually just mere conventions. They are things which are created by us, and they can actually be altered by us if we so choose. So... Here's just a quote from The Open Society and Its Enemies where Popper stresses this. He says, Norms and normative laws can be made and changed by man. Norms are man-made in the sense that we must blame nobody but ourselves for them, neither nature nor God. It is our business to improve them as much as we can if we find that they're objectionable. And so... When I say the open society is an enemy, it's important to realize that the sense of open society that I'm talking about are these last two senses of informational transparency and the way that will actually transform the foundations of democracy by changing the relationship between individuals and society. The connection to the open society in Popper's sense is that insofar as the future of society is under our control to be shaped and modified as we wish the threat to democracy that I envision informational transparency creating is a threat which can actually be stopped by us if we actually make decisions and act accordingly in the future. Now... How does this work? Well, just consider the rise of social media. So Facebook and Twitter become increasingly uh, present in the day-to-day operations of every person's life. LinkedIn is a tool for (coughs) working with, with jobs and trying to find future career prospects. And the kinds of social media which are present is just continually multiplying over time. And one consequence of this is that when people reflect on the resulting informational transparency that this creates, Sometimes people say that we end up moving towards a society in which people have no respect for privacy and don't value privacy anymore. So here's a quote from Marina Hyde writing in The Guardian. Quite often we find ourselves facing a generation who in many cases simply have no understanding of privacy or of what was once perceived as its value. Now, and it's important to realize that in a very important sense, this erosion of privacy is only beginning. Part of the discussion about Google Glass, right, the, the glasses that people can wear, which have cameras and the ability to monitor, do facial recognition of people around you and take video. I mean, if that were to actually be adopted and widespread, this this ability to monitor, to survey, to capture and make information publicly available is you will just be very widespread. Also, if you look online, some people have talked about life blogging. This is an attempt to create, effectively, a video stream of every moment within your waking life and saving it to disk so that if at any point in the future you want to rewind and find the nature of the bottle of wine that you drank on a certain day, you'll be able to scroll back the video and look at yourself looking, or look at the label just as you saw it when you looked at it through a set of glasses. So the threat that this creates towards privacy is absolutely enormous if if realized in this way. And one question I want to ask is, is this in fact bad? Now, one reason why you might think that it might not be a bad thing is that early societies, early forms of life in which humans found themselves were maximally open. What I mean by that is, if you look at, say, the discussion of early human societies, as in Jared Diamond's book, The World Until Yesterday, up to about 10,000 years ago, the vast majority, in fact, almost all human existence, were in a form of social organization known as bands. That is, a few families that were generally related up to a population of about hundred people living together. In a society like that, you have maximal informational transparency because everyone knows everyone else, everyone is aware of what everyone else is doing, and there is no sense in which anything could actually be kept as a secret from anyone else within that band of which you are a part This would be a maximally open society. And what some people have said is that in this greater informational transparency that we see with Facebook and Twitter and other kinds of social media, we are simply returning to this natural state, right? That is to say that our ability to live private lives in the manner of which we have become accustomed has largely been an anomalous form of life compared to the vast majority of human existence. And so uh, insofar as you know, this informational transparency will make us live in an open society, this is just a return to, this, to the natural state in which we were in. But one thing which I think people have failed to note when they made comments like this is that they fail to appreciate the sense in which many of our current social institutions and many of our current social practices are actually not designed for a form of life in which everyone knows everything else about the people who they live with and who they're around. That is, much of our current form of life is designed explicitly to try to address problems of social life and social organization in these vast metropolises in which we are all effectively anonymous and throughout much of our day to day life as we go and negotiate our way down the street. And so many of the social institutions were not actually designed for the kinds of informational awareness and social existence that were present in these small scale societies. And so given that, I want to suggest that the argument that some people have made that we are simply returning to our natural state is by, and so therefore won't be harmful is by no means an obvious conclusion to draw because it's not clear that given current social practices and current social institutions that returning to this level of awareness, this level of openness and of complete informational transparency that were present in early human societies will in fact be harmless. So just for example, here are some features of of human existence in these small scale societies which were generally widespread but which are now lacking in the modern world. So these small bands were typically egalitarian. In a small society with only 100 people, where you had a hunter-gatherer existence, there was very little in terms of wealth differences between the population. So people were effectively viewed as equal. Decision-making was largely consensual, typically informal, (laughs) done by consensus. And an important point, which I'll return to later, is that whenever something was done which was viewed as a transgression, the model of justice that existed in these small societies was a model of justice which was restorative, not punitive. Punishment might be a part, but that wasn't the fundamental aim. The fundamental aim was actually to try to take the transgressor and put him or her back into a form of life where things could carry on as they had been before. And finally, there are just very few formal social institutions. This kind of world, the world of small-scale societies, is not our world presently. And this is part of the cause for concern. So let me now turn towards the point about foundations of democracy, which I think has to do with a view of individualism and how this connects to notions of privacy. So if you think about the modern conception of the individual, and you think about how we think of personal identity, There's a lot of debate about where exactly that conception of the individual has come from. And if you look at the debate in philosophy, there's a lot of discussion about how you can try to identify where the modern notion of the individual originated. And so I've just listed some examples up up here. They stem all the way back from the ancient Greek times with the thought of Epicurus up through the uh, emergence of Protestantism, the development of capitalism, You can see how this might make sense in terms of the idea of the individual, the individual uh, laborer as a source of his or her labor that can be sold to a particular uh, factory or or whatnot, and that source of labor as a locus of identity for the person. And then there are other kinds of cases which are relevant, the development of classical and neoclassical economics or natural law theory. But the point is, there's quite a bit of debate about where individualism came from But what I think there is a lot of agreement on are what are important characteristics of individuals. And the reason why I want to talk about this is because I think an important part of our understanding of democratic societies hinges on the idea of the individuals which compose those societies. So characteristics of individualism are, I think, relatively uh, straightforward. So one idea is that whenever you talk about human beings, when you talk about persons, there's a sense in which people are intrinsically valuable. It's important to talk about the, the dignity of people or the dignity of human, human persons. And so you can see this in the thought of Kant, where he says, every person is an end in, in itself. Right? Every person has a source of, of intrinsic value. In addition to that, an important aspect of the individual is that people are in control of their future. People are autonomous. When people act or do things, their thought or their action is their own. And the product of our thought and action is largely free from factors that are outside our own control. Or at least, if it is influenced by factors outside of our own control, it's because we want to take those factors into consideration when we decide how to act and what to do. And then a third component of individualism is that there's this idea of a private existence within a social world, right? We have a private sphere in which we can separate myself from the rest of humanity. This, I think, is a very important part of individualism because without a sense of privacy, it's very hard to carve out an individual separate from the rest of society of which we're a part, and lastly, there's a notion of self-development with individualism. Given my particular values and my particular goals, I need to be able to act in ways so as to try to realize them. And the point that I just want to call attention to is that if you think about those characteristics, right autonomy, dignity, self-development, privacy is implicated quite centrally in all of those. There's no sense in which we can talk about Uh, I think a sense of autonomy if we can't actually talk about privacy where my reasons reasons for acting a certain way are my own personal reasons where I need not actually articulate those and defend them to the rest of society. There's an important aspect of of having that sense of privacy. And also, this is also connected to the idea of self-development. If I have my own goals and ends that I want to try to achieve it's important that I can try to realize those goals and ends in private without being subject to social pressure. And so I think that in addition to those characteristics I put before, we can see that privacy is important because freedom of thought and freedom of expression, both very central ideas to democratic societies, require the ability to help shield the individual from excessive social pressure so that we can try to mitigate forces of the rest of society from influencing and acting upon the person to try to get them to act in a way other than what they would take to be true to themselves. And finally, I just think that privacy is important if we think that society should actually allow what Mill called experiments in living. And so this is a point I'll return to in a moment, but I think the idea is very straightforward. If you think about society and you think about social practices... The fact that society is imperfect, we don't have the best way of organizing society identified, we should allow there to be a plurality of forms of life. And this is what Mill meant when he talked about experiments in living. He said, as it's useful that while mankind are imperfect, there should be different opinions, So it is useful that there should be different experiments of living, that free scope should be given to varieties of character, short of injury to others, and that the worth of different modes of life should be proved practically. That requires a certain amount of privacy because you want experiments of living to be able to be conducted without excessive social pressure from other sources who might disagree with that particular kind of experiment. Now, one question I want to ask is, well, where did privacy come from as a value? And I think that this is an important question to ask because it gets to the issue of why, I think, privacy and all of the things that privacy touches upon with respect to individuals and the importance of democracy is challenged in an open society. So to address this, I first want to note that privacy, interestingly, wasn't always viewed as something that was valuable. So Hannah Arendt, in her book The Human Condition, talks about a shift in the conception of privacy from the ancient world to the modern world. Now, one of the things that she points out was that in ancient thought, so this is thought of the classical Greeks, that the privative trait of privacy indicated in the word itself was all important. It meant literally a state of being deprived of something. Now, I wanted to call attention to this because I think this is a, a connotation which we don't normally have when we think of privacy. Normally when we talk about a private existence, we don't think of that as meaning a privation, a sense of being deprived of some aspects. Now, in a society where people were thought as essentially social, as irreducibly and ineliminably social, you could see why having a private sphere for yourself would be seen as, some, as a lacking, as a failing. It would mean that you were not actually engaged in some aspect which is essential to the human condition. But the important point is that in the modern world, we have a very different conception of privacy and of the value of privacy. So Arendt goes on to say, we no longer think primarily of deprivation when we use the word privacy. And this is partly due to the enormous enrichment of the private sphere <laughs> through modern individualism. If that's true, then there's an interesting question about how this transformation occurred regarding conceptions of privacy. Why is it that privacy was formerly thought to be a, a bad, something, a, a, an, a lacking or a failing of the human condition, where now it's no longer viewed that way. Well, one thing what I want to note, just as a somewhat speculative claim, is that when you look at the course of human history, I think that when you talk about the rise of the individual, and you think about the various factors that were important for individuals, that in thinking about the original state of, of humanity in these small-scale societies these bands of about 100 people, that the rise of individualism is, I think, not entirely disconnected from urbanization. So think about this. When I talked about the various factors that led to the development of the modern concept of the individual, what time period was that most frequently concerned with? Well, time from about the 17th to the 19th century, I mean, there were earlier precursors, perhaps, but the main theories of the individual were actually quite recent. And I think it's interesting to note that if you look at the development of urbanization, that the possibility of people actually having a private sphere of existence only became real for many around the time period that we're talking about. So what I have here is some population data for various cities, and then the size of those cities from 1,500 to 1,800. And what I think is interesting to note is that, take a city, say, London, and at 1,500, London only had 50,000 people. Now, that's still quite a few, but very small in comparison to the population that we have presently. And it's only from 1,600 to 1,800 that you see this rapid growth from 200,000 people at 1,600 to over 800,000 in 1800. And if you look at other cities, such as Naples, Paris, and Rome, you see a similar trajectory in terms of the number of people who are living in those societies. Why is that important? Well, it's important because in these early forms of human existence, the bounds, privacy was just not a possibility. Everything knew everything about everyone else. It's only when you have large urban developments that the possibility of anonymity becomes real. And when you have the possibility of anonymity and the possibility of carving out a private space for yourself, then people can start to see privacy as a value. And if you think about this, it makes it provides a possible explanation for something which is, I think, at least for myself as an American, an interesting explanatory puzzle regarding privacy. And that is, if you think about the various rights that we take to be human rights, you think about the various things that are mentioned in, say, the U.S. Constitution, like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Uh, what you fail to find is any mention of a right to privacy. It's interesting that the framers of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights thought it necessary to include the right to bear arms, but not the right to privacy. Why is that? Well, if it is true that there is a connection between urbanization and the value of privacy, we can see that, I think, in this table I've got here. So the U.S. Constitution was ratified in 1789. The first census of states was conducted in 1790. And what I have here in this table are the largest U.S. cities in the 1790 census. And if you look at that, New York, the largest city in the United States at the time, had just over 30,000 people. By the time you get to the sixth largest city, Northern Liberties, you have under 10,000 people. So we're talking about a society in which small town existence, very small town existence, was was the norm for almost everyone. And in that kind of environment, the idea that you really could have a truly separable private sphere is not something that could be seriously entertained as a possibility, much less a right. What sense does it mean to say that you have a right to something if you can't actually demand that it be realized? So now, having said that, let me just say a few more things about privacy before I then go on to talk about the open society as an enemy and how it challenges privacy in many of these founding ideas of of individualism. What do we actually mean when we talk about privacy? One of the things you, you'll note is that up to now, I haven't said anything to actually attempt to define privacy. And there's actually good reason for that. So here's a quote from Judith Jarvis Thompson, the philosopher. and She says, Perhaps the most striking thing about the right to privacy is that nobody seems to have a clear idea of what it is. And I think that there's quite a lot of truth about that. If you look at attempts to define privacy... Most of the attempts fail because they're either too narrow or too broad. They try to be overly restrictive on what privacy is, or they are too general in, in characterize privacy as something which is not really what we mean when we talk about privacy. So, for example, the Justices Warren and Brandeis define privacy as the right to be let alone. Well, if you think about it, that really doesn't quite get at the idea of privacy, If I'm walking down the street and someone shoves me, I'm clearly not being let alone. But at the same time, the violation of my right to be let alone by being shoved is not a right to privacy in the sense that we would normally want to endorse. So that attempt to characterize privacy just is too broad and doesn't work. What's the right way to think about privacy? Well, I'm not going to try to characterize Privacy, or give definitions of privacy because I don't think it's really fruitful to try to define privacy. Here, I think the best idea of how to think about privacy is to use an idea which Wittgenstein characterized as the idea of family resemblances. And so what do I mean by that? Well, think about what runs through your mind when you look at a, a, a family portrait of, say, 25 people standing together. You might say, okay, well, I recognize so-and-so's nose and their child, and this person has the build of, say, their father, and this other person has their mother's eyes and so on. But if you want to try to say what each and every single person has, which clearly indicates them as a member of that family, you can't do it, right? It's always a little bit of overlap, right? A characteristic of this and of something else. And I think privacy is a lot like that. So privacy involves things about losing control over the ways in which your information is used. I think it involves things like the secondary use of information about yourself, and we can go on and try to multiply additional characteristics of privacy. But I think the important thing is we don't need to worry about a definition of privacy as long as we all have a relatively reasonable understanding of what we mean when we talk about privacy and can try to characterize failings of privacy when we see them. So let me now turn to the central part of my talk, which is the open society as the enemy. And what I would like to do is actually proceed via case studies and try to indicate a number of instances of informational transparency and openness, which threaten many of the things that I've talked about as values of democracy. So, to begin with, what I would like to talk about is a case study which I actually call The Accidental Terrorist. And I think this is one that everyone is familiar with. So, this is the case of Paul Chambers in Robin Hood Airport. And so, through a tweet which, after the fact, was, I think, widely recognized as misguided, as well as generating a sense of humor failure by the authorities, Paul Chambers tweeted when the airport he was trying to fly out of was closed. He, he said, crap, Robin Hood Airport is closed. You've got a week and a bit to get your shit together. Otherwise, I'm blowing the airport sky high. After tweeting this, it came to the attention of the authorities, who then arrested Paul Chambers under th- the uh, charge of threatening to blow up the airport. Now... The thing that's interesting about this is, first of all, I don't know many terrorists who would actually tweet such a threat by saying, you've got a week and a bit. But the point is this, that in an open society where a lot of information is widely available, there is an inevitable tendency for authorities to engage in data collection and data mining And what's important is that in the contemporary world, we are part of a zero-risk culture. In a zero-risk culture, what is the outcome? Well, the outcome is that if you have a choice between false positives, that is, identifying someone as a terrorist when they're not, versus a false negative, saying that someone isn't a terrorist when they actually are, the zero-risk culture is going to go in favor of false positives, as we saw in the case of Paul (coughs) Chambers. And what this means is that in open societies with a zero-risk culture, many people run afoul, or at least run the risk, of having themselves classified in categories which they entirely don't belong to. Another example of the accidental terrorist, which I like to call lost in translation, occurred quite recently in a, in a story that was reported in the news. And this was the case of a 26-year-old bar manager uh, and his friend who were denied access to the U.S. They flew from, I think, London to L.A., and then after they got off the plane, they were detained by Homeland Security. You see, Lay had unfortunately tweeted, uh, free this week for a quick gossip prep before I go and destroy America. Now, here, he didn't realize that there's an important difference between U.K. English and U.S. English, because in the U.K., when you say... I'm going to go and destroy that buffet or destroy that bar, it means you're going to go and make yourself freely available and everything it has to offer and have a really good time. In the U.S., which doesn't typically condone people having a really good time, they think that when you tweet, I am going to go and destroy America, they mean you're really going to go and destroy America. And so, yet again, we have a case of something which is said, for entirely innocuous reasons, yielding a very unfortunate outcome. Now, in general, this is actually something which is not an isolated incident. So setting aside those two anecdotal stories, it's worth noting that currently the no-fly list in the U.S. contains about 21,000 names. That's a lot of suspected terrorists who aren't allowed to fly, especially when you realize that the no-fly list had incurred such incredibly threatening individuals as Senator Ted Kennedy, Nelson Mandela, and the singer Cat Stevens, now Yusef Islam. Now, the thing that's interesting is that these people through exercising of their political authority, their connections, and their wealth, were eventually able to get themselves removed from the no-fly list. But the point is that ordinary citizens caught up in the web will not be able to avail themselves with the same sort of uh, means of extracting themselves from this web of entanglement of which they are a part. And just as another note... A professor of jurisprudence from Princeton, Walter F. Murphy, was denied a boarding pass because he, too, was on the terrorist watch list. And what's interesting is that when he went and talked to an airline employee, the employee asked, Have you been in any peace marches? (laughs) We ban a lot of people from flying because of that. (laughs) So... Now, let me turn to a second host of issues, which is what I like to call the policing of the personal. Okay, now what do I mean by that? Well, there are a couple of things which fall under this category. So there's a recent study done by Kaplan of admissions officers for colleges and universities in the U.S. And what they asked them was, how many of you have actually gone and looked up the Facebook pages of students who are applying to study at your university? Or how many of them had gone and looked at the Twitter feeds of people who had applied to university? And the thing that's interesting is more than 30% of the admissions officers admitted to actually having done that. And moreover, of those, 30% said that they had actually found negative information of the candidate on their Facebook in their Twitter feed or other kinds of social media. And the thing that's interesting is that in some cases that actually resulted in people being rejected from the university who would have been admitted had their Twitter feeds not been found. And so part of the concern is that when information is made open and transparent, things such as judgments of appropriateness or suitability end up being made using cases where context cannot be taken into account or intended interpretations. Conversations which are, which are innocuous can nevertheless be interpreted very differently by people who are on the outside and are not familiar with what was being said. Now, more interestingly, perhaps, or more worryingly, we might say that aside from admissions officers, you also find cases of corporations or businesses which are adopting social media policy, and the LSC as an institution is also doing so. What does it mean for a corporation or an institution to adopt a social media policy? Well, it means that the organization will periodically monitor the use of social media by its employees and take into account whether what is being said on social media falls within views of appropriate conduct by the Business or institution. So the IT research firm Gartner estimates that such monitoring will rise to 60% by 2015. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you look online, you can find a number of cases of people who have been fired from their job as a result of things that they have posted on Facebook or Twitter. Now, admittedly, what's it- In some cases, you might look at the things that were said and say, yeah, I can understand why that person might have been fired for having said that. This is not the sort of thing which perhaps one might want to have an employee of a business actually say. But what I worry about is the erosion of what is viewed as acceptable or appropriate in this kind of context. If you are working for McDonald's and you happen to be a vegetarian, and you, make, and you post a tweet that says, I don't understand why anyone would eat a McDonald's hamburger. Right? They're just disgusting. Does the fact that you say that really provide McDonald's with sufficient reason for firing you? Part of the reason why this is a concern is that in the States, admittedly not here, in the States it is a right-to-work culture where employers can fire employees for effectively any reason whatsoever, or in fact with no reason whatsoever. <coughs> And the reason why this is important and why I call this the policing of the personal is it means that this intrusion of the corporate sphere into the private sphere is changing the nature of labor relations and changing the relationship between individuals and businesses of which we're a part. So we all know that mobile technology, you know, iPhones, BlackBerries, and so on, have started to encroach upon the work life balance so much that many people now feel themselves incapable of disconnecting from the workplace when they actually leave the office. But what monitoring of social media creates, especially when social media is becomes the primary form of interaction between people in an informal friendly basis is that this seems to require that people impose upon themselves restrictions to their freedom of speech or perhaps their freedom of association based on the perceived interests of the employer and the threat that the employer makes about their being fired and what this what this creates is an internalization on behalf of the person, where people feel like they can no longer say something freely without first running a filter and saying, what might my boss think about that? Is this really in the interests of the corporation for, which, for whom I work? And so one way of thinking about this is that this effectively creates a kind of panopticon for the mind. So this was a prison that was designed by Bentham. He returns again, where what... The point of this prison design was was that each prisoner located in their cell was capable of being monitored by the guards. But more importantly, each prisoner had no ability of knowing whether they were in fact being monitored by a guard. And so the prisoner had to adopt an attitude of always thinking that 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 he was being monitored even if he wasn't. And what we find with social media in corporate monitoring of that is something similar. You always have to act as if you are being monitored by your boss or some other organization which might view what you say as objectionable even if you aren't actually being monitored because it could happen in the future. So it's worth noting that this Panopticon prison design was actually never realized in practice save for maybe a few cases. Um, Here's a prison in Cuba in 2005 that was actually built on the model Um, here's what it looks like on the inside Uh, I mention this because it's just worth noting that in terms of prison design this is much nicer than prisons in the US because you have windows right? Um, but the thing is the panopticon of Bentham regarding prisons was actually not really realized but this panopticon of the mind through monitoring of social media is very easily realized and I think has much greater scope for being abused and for causing change to how people act. And now let me turn to yet another instance of where I think things might go awry. And this is a problem that I would like to call the bully pulpit. So we know that the ubiquity of social media means that bullying is much easier for people to engage in on an around the clock basis. And there's much greater scope for bullying than existed before. When I was a kid, if you were bullied, you knew that if you went home you could find in your home a safe space where the bullies could no longer reach. But now, because of social media, you can be bullied inside the privacy of your own home, and there's no sense in which there's any space which is actually safe, where you are no longer potentially under threat. And there have been a number of stories in the media where this threat of bullying through social media has led to suicides. So I put two cases of of that... Here, someone committing suicide after photos of a sexual assault were circulated online, and of the UK teenager Hannah Smith, who was cyberbullied on Ask FM. Now, so this is one aspect of bullying, but I think there's another important aspect which hasn't yet been talked about. And it's that the fact that so much uh, on social media is made widely available, it enables individual people to be selected for widespread moral outrage for reason, in, in, in case, under conditions that were not possible just a few years before. So let me give an example of that. So here's a case of a recent Halloween party that made the newspapers. So there are two people there who are dressed as the Twin Towers. So you can see, I think, the uh, North Tower and South Tower, and then uh, a fire, uh, wreckage of a plane, and so on. Now, not a particularly tasteful Halloween costume. Um, they certainly might have found more flattering outfits if that was uh, a name of theirs. But what I think is not at all odd is the fact that this photo, which was circulated on, on social media, was picked up by the Daily Mail, and published with a a kind of widespread moral outrage calling for criticism of these two individuals on a national level. right? And the fact is that you could have two people who may have made a decision in bad taste, which was not particularly well advised, could nevertheless be singled out for this moral outrage on a national level, or an international level, actually, given the, the ease with which things can go viral is, I think, just extraordinary. And it's an abuse of power on behalf of you know, certain a- elements of social media, which was just not possible before. And so the fact that these sorts of things can happen create, again, this idea of, amongst people who are risk averse, always checking to say, well, what are possible consequences of, these, of this information being released? And I think it's just worth, at this point, to note that In in talking about this, there are important asymmetries in this openness that are related to power and wealth. So there's a nice quote from an American TV show about taking something off the internet. And it says, dude, you can't take something off the internet. That's like trying to take pee out of a swimming pool. (laughs) And there's something which is very true to that, in that it's very hard to delete something from the internet once it's been uploaded. Unless, of course, you happen to be very wealthy or very well connected. And so much has been reported about the increasing use of injunctions, super injunctions by the very wealthy. That is, if you are wealthy or a member of the political elite and you don't want something reported, you can take out an injunction which prevents any media outlet from talking about it. A super injunction is where you have an injunction taken out against reporting about the injunction. So not only are the media muzzled, but they can't even say that they've been muzzled. Now the point is, that is something which is available if you are wealthy, have access to expensive lawyers who are well-connected, but it's not something which is available for the ordinary citizen. So this is one important asymmetry. And another important asymmetry is that if you look at cases of political uh, decision-making, look at the Uh, Ian Tomlinson case. Look at the Plebgate scandal. Look at many of the kinds of controversies that come out of the government. There's a sense that while our information might be transparent and so much of our lives as citizens is made open, that openness is not reciprocated by the powerful. Now, let me just say something about uh, this argument, well, that is often heard in this, that if you are innocent, you have nothing to hide. This is, I think, not entirely disconnected from the idea that we are returning to this earlier stage of society in which people found themselves. And this view is actually endorsed by William Hague. So here's a quote where he says, if you are a law-abiding citizen of this country going about your business and your personal life, you have nothing to fear about the British state or the intelligence services listening to your phone calls or anything like that. In other words, you don't have to worry about privacy violations because it's only criminals who care about their privacy being invaded. And the point that I want to make with this is that it's important to see what's wrong with this argument because it's very often an argument that's put forward about why the growth in informational transparency and openness is not something which should be viewed with any skepticism or fear. So the point to note... As I said just a moment ago, is that the way this argument works is that it identifies the desire for privacy with the desire to either conceal information about illegal activities or to conceal negative information about the person, and you can actually see this view you mentioned quite frequently. So here's a view from the uh, U.S. judge. Posner, where he says, when people today decry lack of privacy, what they want, I think, is mainly something quite different from seclusion. They want more power to conceal information about themselves that others might use to their disadvantage. And also, privacy involves a person's right to conceal discreditable facts about himself. (coughs) So, when framed like this, the argument can initially be quite effective intuitively, because people think that privacy in this sense is only going to be used by those with criminal intent or who have something which is negative or unflattering. What I want to do is actually take a few moments to challenge some of the presuppositions of this argument. First thing I want to do is just ask, well, what does it mean to say, well, if you are a law-abiding citizen, you have nothing to hide? What does it actually mean to say that you are law-abiding? There's an interesting book called Three Felonies a Day, where a lawyer named Harvey Silverglate talks about how various shifts in the framing of law make it very easy for people to unintentionally commit, as he says, three felonies a day. Admittedly, he's concerned with the U.S., But given that the U.S. has a tendency of exporting our bad habits to the rest of the world, it's just worth noting what's going on there. So the way this works is that, and this is, I think, quite often a feature of attempts to get tough on crime, is a tendency to remove requirements of intent from various aspects of criminal law. So when that's happened, when that's done, people can very easily find themselves committing felony acts unintentionally, even though they had wanted to do something very different. One case in point, there's a teenager in the U.S. who stole a gun from his stepfather, which his stepfather had used to actually threaten his mother by shooting a hole in the wall behind her, and he sold that gun. Admittedly, not a bad idea. It gets rid of the gun from the stepfather and so provides greater security for his mother. Now, unfortunately, that gun was actually bought by someone who then went on to commit a murder. And because that teenager had sold a stolen gun which was used to commit a murder, according to the laws of felony murder in the U.S., that teenager was, committed, was convicted of participating in that murder as just though he were a, willingly, a willing accomplice which had engaged in the planning from the very beginning. Now, furthermore, another problem setting aside these omissions these of intent is the idea that laws can be vague. Laws can be stated so that it remains unclear exactly what the law pertains to. And this is important because it means that when laws are vague, you can selectively choose whom you want to prosecute based on what might be politically expedient. This was something which was very much used in, say, uh, Soviet Union, and it's something which is not, uh, which which has been used in the U.S. at various times. And the part of the concern for this is that if you think about, well, we don't need to worry about selective prosecution because you have the right to a trial by court. Well, that depends on how risk averse you are. Because suppose that you are accused of committing a crime and you're given an option of plea bargaining for a very reduced sentence of, say, six months suspended, whereas if you are found guilty, you'll go to prison for 30 years. Now, you have to have quite a strong sense of uh, faith in the system in order to be willing to run that risk. And so it's worth noting that up to 90% of the accused in various kinds of felony cases in the U.S. by federal prosecutors never actually go to trial. Instead, they go for plea bargaining. So aside from that, there's a point that, well, even if you say that you are innocent now, it doesn't follow from that that you will be innocent later. And so it's worth noting that, and this is relevant for the UK residents here, that although the US prevents ex post facto laws, the UK doesn't. And there have been a couple of nice instances of this recently. So the case I'm thinking of is perhaps not the most egregious violation of ex post facto, but it is one example nevertheless. So you all may have heard about the cases that were filed where people complained that they were being forced to work for free in order to receive job seekers' allowance. Some people challenged that and took it to a court of appeals. The court of appeals actually ruled in favor of those who were forced to work without pay and said, yes, they should have been entitled to receiving pay, even though they were also receiving job seekers' allowance. Simply receiving job seekers' allowance doesn't mean that you can be forced to work for free. Now, interestingly, once that decision was made, Parliament passed a law which retrospectively changed the law so that the people who were subject to up to £130 million in payout as a result of this ruling were no longer subject to that. When you have a system which permits ex post facto changes to the law, the fact that you have tried with best of intent to follow the law and remain innocent doesn't mean that you will always remain so. So finally, what are we moving towards? Well, I think the important thing that we need to realize about the open society is that there's this threat of the human stain, that we risk creating a society where the informational transparency means that nothing is forgotten, and every mistake of a person is made available for all to see everywhere. And this is important because forgetting is an important aspect of human identity and the important aspect of people being able to remold themselves and make themselves different from how they were before. If you can't leave your past failings behind, it's very hard for you to recreate yourself and try to engage in self-development and become a better person, dissociating yourself from the kind of person that you were before. Now, in the past, right, right, after the discovery of the new world, people could emigrate to the new world and start again after the formation of the United States. People could go west right and start again. But the point is with informational transparency, greater surveillance greater tracking of people 's identity, these abilities to attempt to start again and reinvent yourself are being eliminated and this has important consequences for what we think about say people 's ability to try to be to try to Make amends for past failings and try to make themselves better people. Now, lastly, let me just say something about restorative versus punitive justice before closing. And this was the point that in small-scale societies, openness was predicated on the fact that whatever people did something wrong, the important thing was to try to figure out how people could be reembedded in society and the social relations restored to a livable practical state for the community to go forward. In large-scale societies where most people are anonymous, the point of punishment is to act as a deterrent. You want to provide a disincentive for people for breaking the law or behaving badly. The point is, if a transgression of the law occurs between two people who are anonymous, the system of justice doesn't need to be restorative because there was no pre-existing relation between those two people to be restored. You just need to punish the individual. But what that means then is that the idea of open societies where past transgressions are always made known, that is a system which works best in cases of restorative justice, not in societies where we have punitive justice. And so this creates conditions for great harm for individuals. So in conclusion then, What do I want to say? Well, I want to say, and I hope to have argued for this, that if you think of widespread informational transparency, the open society that I've been talking about, what we see is that it has created the possibility for a number of things. A vast reduction of the dignity and the autonomy and the ability of individuals to engage in self-development you have the inability to try to do what you want to do because of the possibility of great social pressure applied at a scale which is unimaginably before. Reduced freedom of expression and reduced freedom of association due to the fact of monitoring your behavior by either GCHQ or the NSA or your employer or other sorts of institutions. This creates internalized systems of self-censorship which reduces freedom of thought or discourages freedom of thought. And most importantly, all of this system is built on an environment which nevertheless serves to increase the power of the wealthy and the political elites because they are not subject to the same sort of system in which the rest of us find ourselves. And the elite and the wealthy will not be held to the same kind of accountability. And what this means then is that the foundations of liberal democracy are undermined, leaving the open society as an enemy. Thank you.